Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather take a bath or take a walk in order to decompress? Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbath. I'm joined today by Dina, who works for the Atlantic Council DFR Lab, where we're going to be talking about what is happening online regarding the conflict in Israel. Um, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's been a very busy week for you. Thank you for having me, Katie. So before we dive into the work that you're doing, I got to have you answer our trade-off question. What are you doing to decompress? Would you pick a bath or would you prefer to take a walk? Oh, I would rather be on a bike or uh, try to lift some heavy equipment, exercise equipment, which is something I got into recently. It kind of helps me de-stress and get away from anything else and just focus on my own personal physical pain and getting stronger. That's great. And I think it's just so important for anybody that's doing the type of work that you're doing of finding those opportunities to sort of, uh, to, to, to get out and, and decompress and not be online. But, um, do share with us a bit about the work that you do at DFR Lab. Uh, the DFR Lab works on, uh, monitoring and exposing content and incidents of disinformation, hate speech, inf- information manipulation, and authentic coordination online. Um, I specifically focus on Arabic-speaking countries and uh, disinformation and online attacks against media and human rights defenders. And so you've been spending a lot of time monitoring what is happening in the online environment. Uh, Can you walk us through where are you seeing most of the activity? What is that content looking like, et cetera? So over the past um, past week or so now, uh, we at the DFR Lab, we have been monitoring content and statements from and about the conflict uh, from social media users, uh, media and official sources to both understand the overall developing situation on the ground, uh, but also to understand the overall information landscape uh, and the different stakeholders involved, involved in it and the narrative spread at the time. Uh, in order to do so, we have been uh, we've been looking at content from uh, all across social media platforms, uh, but we focus a lot of um, of our content research and what we're seeing uh, on Telegram and X platforms because uh, there's a lot more content that's being spread uh, on those two platforms specifically. And is it mostly video? Is it images? Is it text? Is it all of the above? Um, all of the above. There is even just uh, posts that include texts. People are speculating about what may have happened, what parties are involved. Uh, because of the nature of this attack and, and how fast it happened, uh, and there was a lot of information missing uh, from the first uh, from the. Uh, first hours, uh, there was a lot of people as they were rushing to either report on events or just understand it. They were posting their uh, speculations of variety of content. And those speculations uh, were also mixed with a lot of uh, a lot of misinformation content. People are not really intent to spread misinformation, false information, but they were spreading old footage from uh, previous escalations or in- incidents in this uh, particular conflict. Uh, or from other conflicts uh, such as Syria. And Hamas had a huge, they were ready for this, right? In terms of once once they started attacking, they also had a very coordinated social media campaign. Is that right? Uh, what we have noticed that on Telegram specifically, Hamas was prepared and ready and active to post timely updates and propaganda videos um, and um, footage also of, of their attack um, and very, very few hours of it. Um, uh, they have two Telegram channels that we have followed very closely, uh, one that's official Telegram channel of Hamas and another one of the Qassam Brigades, which is the military wing of Hamas. Uh, both of them were very active. Their posts, they have a really high uh, rate of posting. Uh, and we have noted that their uh, subscribers have uh, really increased uh, by a lot. Because some brigades subscri- subscribers have uh, almost tripled uh, to over 600,000 subscribers just over the past week. And why do you think, is there any particular reason that you think they are using Telegram and X more versus other platforms? Of good uh, moderation policies and Telegram makes it easy for it to be uh, uh, to be used by such groups. Uh, there's also an important part to remember uh, that Hamas is designated as a terrorist group by a, group, by a lot of countries in the world. Uh, and also a lot of social media platforms end up designating it uh, as much in according to their policy. So Hamas cannot really have... 
uh, official presence uh, on a lot of social media platforms. Uh, so a messaging application uh, where you can post a group of sub subscribers that you have to go to this specific group to get their updates. That is a, it's an easier platform for them to use uh, and lessen the possibility of their content uh, being removed. Uh, but what we have seen is that content travels, which is not really unique to this particular conflict or any event, uh, but a lot of the content that's being posted on Telegram uh, by uh, Hamas uh, has made its way to X, but it's not really posted by official uh, channels of Hamas. It could be posted by supporters or sympathizers or other people who are um, just trying to post updates from different sources. What about TikTok? I'm super curious to know like, if TikTok is being used because you know, in some ways, this is a bit of a test for some of these platforms as we go into all the elections that are happening next year. And we hear that you know, a lot of Gen Z go to places like TikTok and Instagram now when there's these type of breaking news situations versus when they make have gone to Twitter before. I'm curious what you're seeing on those platforms. We have monitored um, things on TikTok. We've also looked at threads and Instagram. Um, we're just seeing a lot more content publicly on X as a social media platform and Telegram as a messaging application. But there's still a lot of content um, across social media platforms. Uh, there's a lot of focus right now on X and, and what's spread on it, but it's important to remember uh, that the EU regulators, for example, did not send only a letter to X. They sent uh, letters to X, TikTok, uh, Meta, and uh, YouTube as well, because content is, is available across platforms. Uh, it's just less. And to, uh, content, content spreading on TikTok is pretty dangerous because uh, young people use that platform. Uh, they uh, are not really uh, uh, fully aware that a lot of the content might be misinformation or disinformation uh, and having, um, having also unverified graphic content uh, circulated that platform to such young people. Uh, it, it's really not, not, the, not the most ideal scenario. Have you seen what content and where content's appearing, being spread? Has it evolved over the last week or so, or has it still pretty much just been Telegram and, and X? I personally think that it's still early to determine all the trends. As of it is right now, it just seems that it's free for all. Uh, all the content was coming out over the past few days was some moderation, not a lot. And now as we've uh, made it a week and EU regulators sent uh, these letters to social media companies were seeing a lot more uh, content being taken down, some accounts getting restricted or suspended. Uh, so all those patterns uh, that we're looking for, they're, they're happening as we speak. Uh, they're just not all out there yet. Yeah, and I think that's a great point about how it's still pretty early on in this and it will be on ongoing situation. And one thing that the media has been reporting is that Hamas has been threatening to use live streaming platforms um, to potentially live stream things, which we know that that has been a challenge for platforms in the past. Is that something that we've we've seen yet? We've seen them using or is that sort of speculation still at the moment? That's still speculation at the moment. We have mostly seen a lot of the pre-recorded videos, even the videos that Hamas's uh, brigade uh, had posted on their Telegram uh, channel. Uh, some of them were edited and some part of it, they're blurring faces or other things like this. They still do edit that footage before it's posted online. Uh, but they also do post sometimes uh, audio messages. Uh, I believe a few of them were, uh, were live and they post announcements about them before they happen. Uh, but uh, it's not really a major trend yet, the live um, posting. And what have you seen, you know, the name of this podcast is Impossible Trade-Offs. And I feel like when conflicts like this happen, there are some real trade-offs on content moderation that these platforms have to, to make. What are some of the things that you've seen that are particularly tricky for a tech company when trying to think about how to handle content that's coming out during a time like this? So language alone makes it incre incredibly difficult to manage the situation because... A lot of people are looking at what's available from the conflict in English. Uh, a lot of people are consuming that uh, content from abroad. Uh, but it's important to remember that there's content in Arabic and in different dialects in Arabic as well, because there's content um, and conversations happening across the Arabic-speaking world. Uh, there's also content in Hebrew. And that alone makes it difficult uh, to do uh, robust content moderation. Of course, that does not mean that we shouldn't try. Uh, but the content alone 
makes it makes it very difficult. The other part of it is the volume, uh, the sheer volume of content. Uh, there's just so much out there uh, that I think when you try to police it, it just becomes uh, uh it just opens a Pandora's box of trying to get to the ins and out of it. And a lot of that content uh, that companies that are looking at, right, social media platforms that are looking at right now is content that appeared first in, 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 in Telegram, for example, and made its way to X because the content keeps traveling uh, between platforms. Uh, there's also the challenge of um, uh, suppressing certain narratives or certain voices as part of the ongoing conversations online. And I believe uh, pre- previous escalations in this conflict, uh, there were a lot of concerns about uh, suppressing Palestinian voices. Uh, so there, there is fear that that could be uh, taking place again this time uh, by uh, different platforms. And do you think the platforms have learned anything from the Russian invasion in Ukraine and having to deal with that? I know this is a different type of situation here, but are you seeing any similarities there in terms of how the platforms have handled that versus this? I think that remains to be seen. It goes it goes back to what we were just saying earlier. It's been just a few days, and I know a lot has happened in those past few days, but the content moderation... Uh, just started as well, as far as I'm concerned, because things just started happening was a, was a conflict escalation too. Having seen a lot of speculation online, uh, I'm very cautious right now about adding further speculation to these things. Uh, but the context of how soon things happening and are still happening is, is important to remember. So this might not be the right question to ask for your last one, but sort of what are you watching now as we continue to go forward in this? Um, what t- types of things are you thinking, you know, either might happen or just where are you, you focusing your attention um, as this continues to evolve? So we continue to do the same exact things that we have been doing since day one, which is monitoring everything that we can possibly monitor in online conversation uh, and uh, uh, and messaging applications, uh, channels, and, and these kinds of groups. We're also looking at official statements that are coming uh, from uh, governments and, uh, and their representatives. But in, in addition to this, we are looking at looking for trends of inauthentic coordination, for example. Are there uh, certain accounts that are posting the same exact things uh, to, to circulate certain types of content? Are certain uh, accounts engaging specifically in amplifying graphic content that have not been taken down? Uh, so anything that ties narratives together online, uh, that is something that we're looking at to see exactly what narratives are being spread uh, and who is spreading them and if they're being spread uh, in any inauthentic coordination on any given social media platform. Great. Well, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got a lot of work ahead of you, so I appreciate you taking a few minutes to walk us through what's happening. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Kate. For this week's long interview, I am joined by Carlos Cotez and Alejandro Moreno, who do a lot of work in Latin America. And we'll be talking about how elections are run on that continent. There's a lot of them that are coming up here in October and the fall, as well as in 2024. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Well, Alejandro and Carlos, thank you so much for joining Impossible Tradeoffs. I'm excited to have you. Thanks for the invitation, Katie. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Before we jump in, today we're going to be talking all things Latin America and elections. Can you both just uh, introduce yourselves a little bit and your organization? Well, I'll jump first. Uh, my name is Carlos Cortez. As you introduced me, um, I am founder and co-director of Linterna Verde, which is a nonprofit that monitors in Latin America public debate for nonprofits. We try to help them understand narratives, stakeholders, spaces, and conversations. And among those things, we have a project that is called Circuito, which Alejo is going to talk about. I have been working in the sector for a few years. Um, I used to be part of the public policy team at Twitter in Latin America. Um, I have been a lawyer and a freedom of expression advocator. And I am also part of the um, Safety and Advisory Council of TikTok, which is a civil society consultation space for all these topics, some of them that we are going to discuss today. And um, Alejandro Moreno, as Carlos said, I am the editor of Circuito, that is the information and analysis initiative for a project from Linterna Verde. We talk about um, such topics as uh, AI and democracy in Latin America, 
on content moderation and platform regulation in our context. I studied law in Bogota um, and I had uh, some season in working for media outlets in Colombia. And then I started working as digital rights researcher in Linterna and then as editor in Circuito. Well, that's fantastic. And I, again, really appreciate you both being here. Let's jump in quickly, very broadly. You know, the audience that the podcast reaches out to may not be familiar, that familiar with what is happening in Latin America, what elections are coming up, what the current electoral environment looks like. And I don't mean to lump the entire continent into one because it's going to be very different from country to country. But I'm hoping that maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview of some of the trends and things that, that you've seen and some overviews of the upcoming elections. Well, um, where, would, where would you like to start? Um, we are going to have elections in Argentina. We're going to have local, local elections as well in Colombia. Chile is still with the plebiscite on the constitutional amendment. So where should we start with? I think is Argentina up first. Maybe we should start there. Yeah, I think Alejo, who didn't say he's actually based in Buenos Aires these days, so he can kickstart the conversation around Argentina. Right. Uh, well, so Argentina will hold elections on October 22. Uh, now, as you may know, the country is been facing a very deep um, economic crisis for the last years. So economy is the main topic of uh, conversation. This is the main concern, but also there is a situation of increasing violence. So with this landscape, um, I want to talk about candidates. The first one is Javier Milei, who won uh, the August primaries and is, the leading, is leading in the polls. Uh, he's an economist. He defines himself as a libertarian and has a sharp discourse against the traditional political class and the state bureaucracy uh, of Argentina. Uh, and he frames this discourse within a cultural war against uh, some progressive struggles such as abortion rights or gender equality. Um, he has talked about, for example, um, eliminating offices such as the um, Women Affairs uh, Ministry, the Education Ministry, uh, to eliminate the Central Bank of Argentina, adopt US dollar as the, as the country's official currency. Uh, so, well, he's uh, the first one in the poll, as I just said. In the other hand, we have Sergio Massa, that is the current Minister of Economy, he re represents the continuity of Kirchnerismo, that is a leftist political force that has ruled in Argentina uh, almost uh, for 20 years uninterrupted, with the exception of the term of Mauricio Macri between 2015 and 2019. And then we have uh, Patricia Woolrich, that is a candidate of uh, Juntos por el Cambio, a uh, party that was created in, in 2019 for Macri's re-election. Can we zoom out really quickly? Because not everybody might, might know what kind of, um, this is a presidential election, right? Like, what's the structure, like, really zooming out, like, what's the what's the structure of, because it's it's not a parliamentarian election, right? Is there going to, people are going to vote for, for president? Can you just kind of walk through right. those basics for folks who might not know? Okay, well, Argentina, as some other uh, countries in Latin America, have a two-round system with a first election with all registered uh, candidates. That will be the one on October 22. And then the, most the two most voted uh, will move on to a second and final election. Um, so and that would be held on, on November 19th. I'd say that's that's an important point, uh, the one you're saying, Katie, because most countries in Latin America have a presidential system, which also signals some of the tensions that we see on social media. It's kind of a winner-takes-all system. It's a very strong figure in the region, the, pres the president. Uh, perhaps uh, Argentina, less if you compare it uh, to Colombia, uh, if you compare it to 
Chile to some extent, but that's, that's an important point. And I would say starting with the next important election, that's the case of Ecuador. Ecuador is also going for the um, uh, second round of the polls uh, this month in, on October and is going to be amongst the last two candidates that uh, were from the first round, which is, which are Luisa Gonzalez uh, and Daniel Novoa. Luisa Gonzalez belongs to the movement of former President Rafael Correa, who is currently in exile, which is a very trendy thing in Latin America, having former presidents in exile. Um, he's in Belgium, accused of corruption charges, which are fairly politically based, probably most of them have some basis, but he has become a very strong figure. He was very important during the years of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. So this is Luisa Gonzalez, who was ahead in the polls uh, when it was the first round. And the other candidate is Daniel Novoa, which represents like the more um, right-wing, traditional side of the businessman uh, representation in Ecuador. They will they will be heading to the polls on October 15th. So probably when people hear this, the election has already occurred. Um, but Ecuador is facing a very different context than what, what had happened in the recent years. We had, during the election in Ecuador, the assassination of a presidential candidate, Francisco Villavicencio, was murdered before the first round. And this opened a very complicated scope in this country, which is more akin to what Colombia lived during the 90s. So it has a very strong presence of uh, drug dealers and, and, and gangs, which with a lot of power. Ecuador is also a country with a very strong indigenous movement. They have political power, not, of, not for example, to what happens in Colombia, where it is is weaker. So that's also another important election that is taking place this year and that also has had some impact on, on the public debate on social media. Well, I would add just very briefly, and if you want to uh, ask something as a follow-up there, the elections in Colombia are just um, uh, local elections. Uh, they tend to have not a very important impact in the region. Uh, the biggest prize, of course, in Colombia is the mayor's office in Bogota, the capital, uh, which has been regarded as sort of a step for anybody who wants to get to the, to the presidency. What's going to probably happen in the election is that the uh, political alliance of President Gustavo Petro is going to suffer a setback, which is kind of normal as the midterms in the U.S. local elections tend to reflect badly on the national government that has been elected one year or one uh, half and a year before. Uh, and the last uh, election that is important in the region this year is the... Uh, the constitutional plebiscite, the referendum to see if finally Chile will have a, a new constitution. And that's been going on for quite some time, right? That that debate about Chile's constitution? Yeah, it's been going for a long time. Alejo had the uh, the numbers of how many elections they've have had in the in the last in the last year, in the last two or three years. Yeah, well, since twenty twenty they have had four elections. One first to first plebiscite to decide if they actually wanted a new constitution. Next, they elected the members of uh, the, the body the that was going to draft it. Then they rejected that body and um, not elected new members. And in December, they will vote again if they will approve that constitution. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And then what elections are happening next year in 2024? Well, uh, in 2024, we are going to have a election in Mexico and we are going to have, um, let, let me see if I'm sure, the, the election in El Salvador as well with Najib Bukele uh, probably going to just uh, cruise the election to become president again. Um, so perhaps we could start briefly with the with the election in El Salvador. Um, as many people might have heard, Najib Bukele has become kind of this uh, reflection of a strong man in the region. Uh, Bukele is a right-wing figure, but perhaps trying to encapsulate him in the right-wing, left-wing scope wouldn't be as useful to understand him because he has also become kind of a figure of social media. He's a very young politician and he has used heavily video and very coordinated and also artificial strategy to start pushing his agenda, which is mainly tackling crime and gangs in El Salvador. Um, 
he has been very effective in terms of how people perceive him abroad. For example, in Colombia, um, the right-wing parties and media outlets have used uh, Bukele to reflect on how authority should be held in 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 this kind of context. So Bukele is going is by all by all uh, measures going to be re-elected. He changed the constitution as as it happens usually, um, and he's also surfing above a political context in Salvador that has been uh, between two parties, the former guerrilla that came out of the peace accords of the 80s and the right-wing party, which is ARENA. So he is really the only different figure nowadays in in the country. And the other one would be Mexico. I don't know if Ale wants to jump in. It's going to be uh, the replacement of Andres Manuel López Obrador um, by... It seems that the, the, the person that is going to step in is going to be Claudia Sheinbaum, who, which is uh, a political ally of, of Andres Manuel López Obrador. Um, Sheinbaum uh, was the mayor of uh, Mexico City. Well, they don't use exactly the term mayor, which she was like the chief of government of, of Mexico City, which is, of course, a huge uh, challenge for any politician. Um, but it's also going to be a quite a change between a traditional left-wing figure uh, that had like all this background for many so many years. He tried to be a presidential candidate many times, and AMLO is not going to leave the office with such bad numbers, probably because he has um, uh, more or less he has been able to hold uh, some popularity. But by many analyses, he has failed in the main. Thing that he was promising, which was to uh, decrease violence in in Mexico. So, uh, Claudia Sheinbaum is also probably going to be, um, or well, it's, it's a long time still ahead, but she's also a very different figure among the traditional kind of old school parties in in Mexico. There's a lot going on <laughs> in right. the in the right. Let's let's shift to tech now. Let's start with how you're seeing the the parties and the candidates and and other political um, influencers. How are they using tech to influence the information environment? Um, okay, so uh, what we see as as um, as Carlos mentioned with the case of. Uh, Bukele, or now with the case of, of Javier Milei, for example, in um, in Argentina, is that um, video is, of course, taking a huge place in political discussion. In that way, um, like platforms like TikTok and Instagram Reels are um, having a huge role in how uh, candidates and campaigns. Um, Make their 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 discount. Of, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I just no. You're fine. You're fine. I'm. Mean, I'm uh, sure they're using it a lot, right, to communicate with with voters and in stuff and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And um, well, something that that you can see, for example, is that uh, while in Argentina, uh, Milei has uh, one million followers on Twitter, he has three million on on Instagram, and. Um, what we can see is uh, that his performance on on these uh, social media platforms uh, take use some of his intervention in which he presents like a strong man that is all kind of uh, yelling to uh, journalists that are confronting him or to other uh, of his uh, political rivals and as you know, this kind of content is uh, fuel for uh, these uh, attention economy-based uh, platforms. When th- that the thing that like you want to see, and this may explain in some way uh, how the, the popularity of uh, Javier Milei between the youth voters, the the, the younger voters um, that uh, actually supports. Uh, his campaign. We have other cases uh, of the use of TikTok uh, in the last uh, presidential election in Colombia. I don't think know if uh, Carlos uh, want to add here something about what we've seen. Yes, so I think that's a very important point, what we're seeing in Argentina, because it's basically kind of an ongoing strategy of other 
popular candidates in the region, whether they come from the left or from the right or just tackling indignation related to economy as Millet or trying to activate young voters, which is, um, we called it in Colombia last year, the connected, disconnected. This is uh, people that are online but are not are not really aware of what's happening with the news. So they consume lots of uh, Netflix or uh, video uh, lots of, of course, social media, and they they relate easily to these video narratives, which are not really appealing to the reason or to analysis, but just to the emotions, which is, of course, the strength that video has. So in Colombia, we saw it last year with Rodolfo Hernández, which was uh, an old man trying to uh, challenge Gustavo Petro, the former guerrilla politician who, at the end of the day, won the election. And he showed kind of the appeal of this strategy that I don't think we saw it so clearly, for example, with Bolsonaro, not really because Bolsonaro came also from a more Twitter style era, although, of course, he used a lot of video. I'm not saying he didn't. Um, Petro is also a very old style politician, very based on the strength he believes he has to talk to people with tweets. So video also, as it has happened elsewhere, has triggered lots of uh, performance style candidates in the region, which fail spectacularly or or they can succeed. So, for example, in Colombia, we saw... um, a candidate for the mayor's office in Cali, in a big city, which tried to perform. Uh, he, she was, she is a, a female candidate. She tried to perform an aggression on on the streets against her as a woman being a candidate, and it was just fake. So this failed. But other people are are, are using this a lot. So um, if you talk, for example, with uh, assembly. Um, assembly people in Chile, they will tell you that many of the offices of the, that usually were full of lawyers and of politicians with books are nowadays filled with selfie sticks, lights and, and video producers. So this is, this is something very strong. But I would just add very, two, two other short points there. Uh, on the one hand, uh, some of the same strategies being a little bit like worn, worn out because you see like the same sort of coordinated activities on Twitter or now X, trying to push a, um, a trend, trying to build some kind of, of noise on conversation, some hashtags, which also talks to the, the, the crisis or the difficulty for campaigns to understand what's really going on, which spaces work, what they should do. So they're just sort of trying the same things, except for those that are really trying to have some kind of success with video. And the last thing I would add there is that um, lack of uh, communication and strategy building with communities. Uh, you really are not seeing social media to build uh, movements. I don't know, perhaps in, in the video game scope, you might have something of that with niche audiences. So it's really kind of a disorganized way where uh, video and the current uh, setting of social media are favoring people as Bukele, as Milei, and, and to some extent, it might help other candidates in the region in the in the coming in the coming months. Um, in the United States, you know, many candidates are worried about being on TikTok because of the national security concerns. We're seeing that a bit in Europe. It's sounding like those same concerns aren't necessarily being held by the candidates in Latin America. It sounds like many of them are very much embracing TikTok to reach, I guess, particularly a younger generation. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say they are more concerned about how to have success on TikTok. They're trying to understand the way it might work for them. You know, of course, that video is a very risky format in terms of authenticity. So people, I'm not talking about authentic content, which is another discussion we could have, but in terms of how how politicians come across with their electorate. So it's also difficult for them. Many of them, many of the politicians are not ready for that. But I wouldn't say we are seeing that kind of concern with any platforms around regulation tensions. They're trying to, of course, and it was, this would open another conversation. There's a lot of strength in social, uh, beyond social media, such as in closed systems, such as WhatsApp, WhatsApp, which is not as strong in the U.S., is, is very strong in, in, in Latin America. Uh, WhatsApp has also, as you know, sort of gone from, we are not a social, we are not a social media platform, but perhaps we are. So they open channels, they open uh, communities and these kind of things, uh, that started to 
also build a strong audience for, for politicians. Uh, I would say along with Telegram, Telegram, for example, in Brazil is very, very strong, uh, which might also jump into other topics related to the, the effect that has had in some offline instances during, during political contexts. And what about um, older generations? What are they using? Is it still, is it Facebook? Is it, I mean, YouTube, I imagine, still still popular. Um, what are you seeing for, for them? Yeah, like following uh, global trends, Facebook is um, the main social media that people over 50 or 60 years old uh, are using, while uh, Instagram and TikTok remain uh, for the broader youth audience. That's and a- then, yeah, go ahead, Carlos. No, so it's it's happening the, the same way as we're seeing, for example, in the US, Facebook has been having a decline among active users, especially in young frame, uh, frames of, of the population. Uh, so Facebook, definitely, but you will also see a very strong use of YouTube. Of course, YouTube is present nowadays in TV sets of people or on mobile phones. Uh, and, and yet again, I would say also WhatsApp, which is also strong among all the generation, which has also lended itself for some disinformation problems. But the other thing I would just add about Twitter, um, is that although it has a very, um, low audience and user base in most countries, you could say, of course, Mexico is a big market still, Argentina, uh, Colombia would follow uh, beyond Spanish speaking, Brazil, of course. Although it has a very small audience, uh, it's very um, heavily ampli- amplified by journalists. So, and um, politicians, of course, but journalists are still giving uh, the, the, the extra uh, wind, wind tail that this kind of platform needs because it's still very important, for example, for agenda setting. So, for example, just, just to put the point there, uh, Gustavo Petro, president, is a very, very hectic Twitter user, which is really not, not very wise, but what can you say? He, he just does it. And it tends to uh, fuel the way the, 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 the public opinion is seeing things based on the way journalists pick up on the, on the daily trends, the daily conversations, the daily tweets. And what about all these Twitter alternatives, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Pebble, are any of those getting any traction in the region? I'm seeing their heads are shaking now. No, it is, <laughs> That's yeah, it, yeah. audio we've format. Been, really. We've been following a little bit the threats uh, and some of Blue Sky, but I don't know, Alejo, if you want to jump there with, with some of your remarks. Uh, no, no. Well, what we see is that these alternative platforms um, don't have a lot of uh, penetration in, among users in, in Latin America, as, as Carlos just said. Uh, we are still waiting to see if threats that with the presence of meta, all meta products in Latin America uh, may get some some relevance, but this this happened. This didn't hasn't happened yet. Sorry. Yeah, blue sky in the region is totally a non-starter. Um, Mastodon had some kind of traction last year when Elon Musk bought Twitter, but you will see it mainly on niche circles of journalists or techie civil society. Uh, representatives, which is indeed an interesting question in civil society. We have had some kind of conversation on that because I wouldn't rule out the idea that we might have been in, in the future non, not having Twitter and not really having a similar platform uh, for those, that specific content and debate because no, no, none of those are, are um, gaining steam. Yeah, that seems to be a big thing that's happening right now, particularly just watching what's happening in Israel. One of the themes coming out of this right now is that people don't have that central spot to go to online to be tracking what is happening. And to me, this is a little bit of foreshadowing of what we might see going into next year and during the elections is that this all might be much more fragmented and um, it will be interesting to see if, if any, does threads become that place? Does any place become that place? It's, it's hard to tell at the moment. I'm also curious about like podcasting and audio. Is that something, you know, we're seeing the rise of podcasting, especially here in the States and other places. Politics is one of the more popular categories. Is that something that you're seeing used at all in terms of campaigning 
Well, I think podcasting has picked up a lot of strength in the last uh, couple of years in many markets in Latin America. Mm, but specifically, well, it has been for a long time like this coming promise now. So podcasting is coming, but it has it has been related a lot to the possibility of developing business models around it. So, for example, uh, Grupo Prisa, which is a very big Spanish player that has media outlets in Latin America, a very strong presence in Colombia, has had some muscle to push some of those uh, ideas and projects in the market. But on the other hand, you saw Spotify uh, investing a, bit, a little bit on, on independent projects, but then they backtracked because this is also related to the crisis or the or the or the overarching questions of the of the um, uh, business. But specifically on campaigning, I would say is less strong. Is is still very driven to uh, audiences that like to more more literated audiences, people that like to consume news. So I wouldn't say perhaps Arge uh, Alejo has been seeing something different in Argentina, but podcasting is is not so important for campaigning purposes. I would say. And then lastly, what about political advertising? What does that look like online? I know each of the countries have their own laws and stuff around that. But does that continue to be something that many of the candidates and parties rely on to reach voters? Yes, yes. We, we see that uh, digital marketing and political advertising on social media platforms is part of all, um, of all, of, of, of all campaigns. And, uh, well, this uh, leads us to ask us uh, a lot of things about um, the laws around election rules because sometimes uh, political advertisement or digital marketing is a way to uh, not a, of violating, uh, you know, like the rules we have for uh, electoral uh, processes. Uh, in the case of Colombia, for example, we have a system that is called uh, Cuentas Claras that you can translate as something as uh, clear accounts or something similar in which uh, campaigns uh, must report uh, all their expenditures. And, um, well, it's, it is a quite limited transparency measure since not everything is registered or not in a timely manner. Uh, but what is interesting is that with other tools, transparency tools from social media platforms, such as um, the Meta Ad Library, uh, you can compare and see what are those uh, inconsistencies. Because in some way, politicians uh, get to disguise uh, their data to authorities, but they can't hide uh, to meta how much are they paying them to promote their content. Um, so, well, this, this, this is like an interesting thing to see uh, in region, but also uh, to, to remark that not all uh, these transparency tools for uh, political advertisements are available all over the region. For example, uh, Google has a transparency center that only covers political content in Argentina, but not in other countries. So there's a gap uh, to see how this is actually developing. And with other approach, uh, this makes us uh, see how limited are uh, the capacities of some authorities to, to track how uh, political advertisement is um, being shared in, in social media and amplified and how it can present some tensions with uh, the electoral rules, such as suspending caps or the times uh, allowed to, uh, to start political uh, announcements and advertisement. Is Facebook the only platform that has some of their transparency tools in many of these countries? To give a nod to my old employer, but I feel like yeah. I know they're available in a vast majority of countries in, in Latin America. Yeah, yeah. The, the library is quite useful and is the only one available. Uh, Twitter recently announced that they were going to do something similar. But, yeah, but uh, Lord knows what that's going to look like. Yeah, exactly. and Twitter exactly. and Twitter has has nonetheless a very small share of political advertisement in the region. If you talk with uh, local spin doctors and strategy advisors, they will say 
put your money on Facebook or on or on Meta because Instagram is of course as useful or on YouTube. Uh, well, you know, for example, TikTok doesn't allow political advertisement nowadays, which I think it would be interesting if they hold the line because it can become very messy. Let's see if, if that's the case because there's a very big confusion, as Alejo was saying, between organic content that is definitely the advertisement uh, because they're paying local influencers, because they're paying local agencies, and which is indeed being reported. But for example, for the press, uh, the meta libraries, the meta ad libraries have been very useful to put some pressure on politicians to tell them how much money are you just throwing into the campaign. So yeah, I would say that your question, it goes that way. Meta has been really the, the most the most outspoken and, and, and active a player in terms of this is the information we have on politicians and advertisement. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if TikTok's able to hold the line as well, not just in the region, but like globally around all of this, because it is very hard to define. It's hard to define what is political and what is not, to your point about organic versus not. And then I wanted to ask about the rise of influencers, because we're seeing that a lot in other places as well of politicians and parties wanting to work with local influencers. And it can be hard to tell if they've been paid or not in doing that. So that sounds like that's something that's happening in the region as well. Absolutely. And you see it, for example, in the in the campaign of Javier Milei in Argentina. He, I mean, he has, of course, his own content uh, on TikTok, but he has had the key uh, support of uh, young influencers in the platform. So when you go and take a look there, some of those influencers are part of the campaign but some of them are not, and they're heavily invested in supporting him. So they have, of course, helped him to look better, but they have also translated many of the things he says to either a specific format or just explaining things in their own words. That That's something that most politicians are aspiring to have. So, for example, Colombia is an interesting case in terms that Petro has a very strong muscle of influencers that helped him through the election and that are helping him nowadays to keep up with the pressure that he has, of course, of being in office and not being able to deliver. But the old, the other trend I would say that we are seeing in the region is uh, influencers just going ahead with their own political career. We have seen some of that in Mexico. We have seen some of that in Ecuador, in Colombia, of course, uh, with Congress women and congressmen that have jumped from being influencers right into office, which also makes a bit more mixed up the situation because another difference that for people might be interesting to to understand in many of the political settings in Latin America is that um, the entry barrier is very low for people to just try to build a political career out of their influence because uh, the the political parties are very weak or we have multi-party multi systems or just independent signature systems. So you can just, uh, you can collect uh, 200,000 signatures and you can try to be the mayor of an office in Mexico or in Colombia. So that also uh, confuses the field and models the water in terms of what, who are, who's our politicians, what's journalism, who's are trying just to support somebody in office or just uh, building a career for themselves. And we've been talking about the threats throughout all of this, but to kind of like really focus on some of the things you're most worried about online. I mean, first and foremost, everyone's talking about AI and you were talking about the importance of, of video. Um, can you walk me through like what you're watching, not only in terms of AI, but sort of threats online overall? Right. Well, um, we were expecting to find some relevant cases around uh, manipulation with some AI tools, but I think that's a thread that maybe for now still on the horizon uh, is not um, really um, like something that uh, you should uh, that we would be worried about right now. Uh, what we have seen are other kinds of like handcrafted uh, content that manipulate um, the candidates' speech, or um, that yeah, with uh, a very few changes, for example, to the subtitles of the video, change all over the the context of what is really being said, 
And uh, I think it's important to point out that um, I'm connecting with what we said about how campaigns are developing in the region uh, and this, uh, the use of uh, some political communication agencies all over the region. There is a market of uh, political uh, agencies that um, are hired by any kind of, uh, of political parties and nonetheless, it doesn't matter what the, the ideology of the candidate is, is, they use these kind of things. And it's uh, a strategy to use troll farms, uh, misleading information sites and fake accounts to influence public debate and win election in their, in, with, for, for, for their clients that are the politicians. This has happened in Central America, in South America, and in Mexico as well. There is uh, um, a very interesting uh, research, uh, journalistic research uh, that was published by CLIP uh, in Latin America a few months ago. It's called uh, Mercenarios Digitales. And I think this shows that um, the problems are not only like uh, on the level of content policies, but also on how uh, these uh, networks are, are developed are, and not detected many times by the platforms nor the authorities of, of every country. Yeah, I would, I would just add to that point that synthetic media is, of course, be becoming an issue and it will become more complicated in the, in the coming months. But our problem or our main challenge with this information is not really based on the fact that there's a lot of demand or offer of fake content because people are driven by the influence of these coordinated operations, are driven by what uh, close uh, relatives and friends might tell them on um, WhatsApp. So this also follows uh, things that we see on the Global South. Um, and there's also an overarching question related to what would be the ideal intervention of platforms? Would, would we want a heavy hand on some of these local settings or we would rather prefer not having them. So we can, we can talk about that a little bit, but just to add another point to what Alejo uh, is saying, we, we saw in the um, election in Colombia, we have seen it in, in this few uh, months over a year that uh, the new government has been in office, uh, an increase in discriminatory content on a racial basis on, 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 on income basis because it's the first time we have a left-wing government in Colombia. Uh, we have an Afro-Colombian vice president for the first time in history. So this also starts opening up questions in terms of what, what would be the ideal way of trying to tackle this problematic content and, and what are also not beyond platforms, what, what society, how are, are, how is society reacting to these, to these issues? And I want to get to the platform approaches here in a minute, but I also want, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about also is continued efforts by Russia, China, other foreign entities to try to continue to push propaganda and influence elections, um, particularly in South America. And I'm curious to know if that's something that that you are, are seeing as well, something that you're concerned about um, as we go into not only these elections here for the rest of the year, but going into next year as well. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing that we have taken a look in Linterna Verde, because I would say that the foreign intervention mainly uh, from Russia or China has been quite focused on Venezuela. So if you see um, the mapping projects of both uh, regional organizations and international on Freedom House or Reported Without Borders, we'll take a heavy look on how uh, inauthentic behavior has unfolded in Venezuela related to Russian operations. And you are going to find that. But if you try to open the scope a little bit more towards Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, it's going to be a bit different um, because on the one hand, it's of course very difficult to identify uh, fake profiles. You know, it, it, it requires like a, uh, an investment in terms of time and resources to, to map these projects. But if you, if you take a look of the differences, you are going to find, I think, a different approach that is less related to the 
to the tactical approach of social media and more to the narratives they are trying to push on, on the media they fund. So uh, on this regard, Russia, for example, is trying to exploit constantly the distrust on the U.S., So you will see lots of pieces related to the dollar because the dollar is a big conversation in Latin America. Alejo was mentioning that indeed Millet is saying he's going to implement dollars, the currency of those, of that country. In Colombia, we, we have sort of a national sport trying to see how the dollar moves every day because one of the things that they said is that when a left-wing government was going to come in office, the, the dollar was going to jump to the roof. It hasn't happened. So... A rush explodes, does that very effectively. Like they're always, and you know, they have some uh, projects related to Spanish speaking uh, outlets, uh, Spanish speaking uh, profiles, some influencers uh, that are also in the region. China, meanwhile, is doing a very different thing, which is trying to say, we are a very interesting option. We know about climate change. We are an economic power. We are this thing. So it's very different the way they try to approach it. So I would say just to wrap up that point, they, there is indeed foreign intervention in terms of inauthentic behavior and coordination on social media. Um, Venezuela, again, is the case that most clearly seen. But beyond that, what we see more is an intervention trying to have uh, different options of social media outlets for people to see, uh, voices, and, and kind of content. They produce a lot of content. So let's shift to the platforms really quickly. We've only got a few more minutes. What are you all seeing from the platforms to prepare for these elections? What would you like to see more of? What do you think some of their biggest challenges are going to be? Um, curious for you to dig into that. Well, now, like Carlos mentioned, uh, we have to ask ourselves how much we want the platforms to intervene in in the normal uh, political debate because, um, well, in Circuito, we follow the evolution of content moderation policies, uh, especially the ones regarding civic integrity processes. And we see that there's not a lot of enforcement in Latin America as It may happen in, in other contexts. Um, but I think we have to separate um, uh, this normal exchange uh, of, or, or normal situation from extreme situation, like the one we had with Brazil at the beginning of this year that was kind of uh, or quite similar to what happened in the capital riots in 2021. And I think in those cases, platforms can have other kinds of responsibility. The, the Oversight Board, for example, uh, this year selected a case regarding um, what happened in, in Brazil. And what they saw was that Meta was not able to provide accurate information on the actions they took during that time. And one recommendation to, to Meta was to create like a frame to evaluate its efforts during, uh, in, to protect electoral integrity And I think that's a basic for, for all countries uh, in America in this kind of situation, not in the normal uh, political debate and, and exchange. Um, we see like a, as part of their local programs, uh, platforms tend to do some trainings uh, with uh, political campaigns, with some uh, election officers, with civil society. Uh, But, well, there is uh, not much more than that. Or labeling, for example, some content related to elections, but sometimes those efforts are not quite uh, useful if what they pretend to do is to combat misinformation. Um, so, well, this is what, what, what we have seen. The short point in terms of what we are trying to advocate constantly with platforms in the region is... Um, That is also related to the media concentration landscape in Latin America. Social media outlets on Facebook, TikTok accounts, Twitter profiles are very important in electoral context. So if, if we perhaps drive focus more towards the appeal process, the notification, the way that some of these decisions can be reviewed quickly, uh, the other things where there is not a a stable intervention in terms of we are going to suspend accounts or we are going to have this team, which they are not going to do it at the end of the day because they don't have these special operations uh, except for big markets such as Brazil, Mexico, is where the focus should be because this can have a very big impact uh, during specific points of the election. As Alejo was saying, some crucial 
topics related to election integrity that should be addressed in terms of uh, the impact that they can have on a specific candidate or on a specific outcome. Uh, that's where the platforms are lacking uh, really really um, most of the time in the cases in Latin America. Well, I think we could have dug into so many more things here. I hope to have you both back um, as we continue to to watch all, all this stuff and monitor it. But Alejandro and Carlos, I just want to thank you so much for joining us here on Impossible Tradeoffs today. Thank you, Katie, for taking a look at Latin America and speaking with us and just inviting people to follow us in Circuito, which is the project that specifically talks about these issues. And I'll be putting links to all those things and some of the other things that we mentioned in this article in the show notes. I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Tradeoffs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much.